Let's ask God to help us uh, with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the way it directs us to your truth, which can save us and which can teach us how to follow Jesus. And we thank you that it presents our Lord Jesus to us so that we can know him, trust him and live for him. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and by your great mercy to be people who just are not hearers but people who hear and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there you are. You've trained for the job. You've landed the job. Today's your first day in your new position. And hopefully, if your work's half decent, uh, they'll spend the part of that first day inducting you into the company or into the institution and your role by taking you through the operational manual or the protocols they have. You know, the what-to-do-if scenarios that tell you how to respond to certain predictable events or challenges that you will meet in your new role. The nuts and bolts instructions that will mean you can carry out your job effectively. Now, as we've heard, Timothy's been given a job, well, more correctly, a responsibility, a very significant responsibility to maintain the pattern of teaching received from Paul and to guard the gospel message given to Paul by Jesus and by Paul to Timothy. Now, that's an awesome responsibility for the gospel message is the life-giving message for the world. And while Paul, as we saw in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 2, has spoken of the cost, in a sense he still hasn't given Timothy the how-to, how to go about that ministry in the light of the predictable challenges he'll face. That how-to is what we have here in verses 14 to 26. Paul introduces a number of the challenges that Timothy will meet as he teaches what Paul has taught and seeks to preserve the gospel message uncorrupted. The challenges of distraction, false teaching, complacent mediocrity and of abusing power when facing opposition. And Paul gives him here the how-to. The how-to to how to respond to each so that he carries out his responsibility well and he pleases his master, the Lord Jesus. So we'll see verses 14 to 15, the Timothy's to respond to distraction by being focused on the gospel. Verses 16 to 19, respond to false teaching by being faithful to the gospel. Verses 20 to 23, respond to the temptation to mediocrity by being ambitious to be useful to his master. And verses 24 to 26, respond to the temptations of position and power by loving even those who oppose him. But this operational manual is not just for Timothy exclusively. Uh, Timothy's already been told that a core part of his ministry is to train others to teach and to pass on the gospel. And whilst some of what Paul says in these verses is directed directly to Timothy, a lot of it's actually expressed generally to include others to whom that responsibility is given. Remind them, verse 14, if anyone, verse 21, verse 24, the Lord's servant. So this instruction is for all who will share Timothy's role, who are responsible for passing on Paul's teaching and gospel in congregations. But it's not just for them. 
It's also God's word for all of us believers because every believer should be ambitious, whatever our gifts, to be useful in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's face it, we can all be distracted. We can all be enticed by errors we want to believe and we can all be tempted to respond to those who oppose or irritate us harshly. So this is a word for us. So how is Timothy to go about his ministry in a Christian community where he'll meet wrong preoccupations, error and opposition? How are we to go about our lives in a Christian community where we can get distracted, be enticed by error and experience conflict with those who disagree with us? Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Remind them of these things. Paul is talking of what he has just reminded Timothy of in verses 8 to 13. Remind them of the gospel content, Jesus Christ, of the power of the unbound gospel, of the wonderful gospel promises. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Now this is a very serious prohibition with God as witness. But what is quarrelling about words? Well, we know from 1 Timothy that in Ephesus, where Timothy's ministering, there were people trying to establish a reputation for themselves as teachers by paying attention to what Paul calls myths and endless genealogies, things at the very margin of Revelation. We're not sure of the exact content of their preoccupations, but we do know in Jewish circles there was a lot of speculation about some of the more obscure parts of Scripture, like angels and the flood generation. And we also know that the peddlers of these speculations had, again Paul, 1 Timothy 6, an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words motivated as they were by financial gain. You see, to get a following for your speculation, you have to show you have special insight, are more knowledgeable and insightful than the others, and what better way to do that? than by attacking the speculations of your opponents, your competitors. Now, as I've said, we're not sure of the exact exact nature of their quarrels, but in a sense we don't need to because we have no shortage of contemporary parallels of people building great systems of speculation in which you can lose yourself building these systems on the slenderest foundations, an obscure illusion here, a word there, a slightly hard-to-understand prophecy here. You know, we see people preoccupied, say, with the flood generation and the sons of God in Genesis 6, or with great hierarchies of demons or angels or intricate descriptions of what will happen in the millennium or explanations of their identification of the mark of the beast. And people can lose themselves in those things. Timothy has to oppose that. Stop the truth being lost in Postman's words in a sea of irrelevance. Because these people have literally lost the plot, the focus of scripture, and their quarrelling is useless and worse than useless. It leads to the ruin of those caught up in it. And Timothy must instead, as well as opposing them, must instead be a model of someone who in his teaching is focused on what matters, on the gospel, 
Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Conscious that he's accountable to God for his handling of God's gospel, what Paul calls here, as he does in Ephesians and Colossians, the word of truth, Timothy is to do his best, strive to be, put his energy into being approved. And the sense there is tried and tested and found genuine. A genuine gospel worker because he rightly handles the word of truth. Now, the word translated rightly handling could actually be used of cutting a straight path that makes travel easy. Timothy's to teach the gospel in a way that's clear and accurate, that makes people's engagement with its content, they're travelling along the path of its truth, easy and direct. And that means teaching the gospel in accordance with its character as the word of God and in line with the purpose for which it's given, to save through faith in Jesus, to help people become disciples in Jesus through repentance and faith and learning all that Jesus has taught. Unlike those running after the obscure, fighting over words who treat the scripture as a launching pad for their speculations, a means of getting followers for themselves, the unashamed gospel minister, someone committed to holding on to the pattern of sound teaching received from Paul, keeps Christ front and centre. Like Paul, who could say of his ministry, we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Our Lord taught, Luke 24, that the scriptures speak of him. And all our engagement with Scripture should be to meet Christ in Scripture, to hear it speak of Jesus. For in Christ, as Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found. He is the one in whom the purpose, plan and promise of God find their fulfilment. The goal of gospel ministry is to help hearers be disciples who know how to do all that Jesus has taught. And that is actually much more healthy and satisfying than endless speculation. Now, you, like I, will meet people caught up in these speculations. They might even try and get you absorbed in them. You might even be attracted to them yourself. In those times, always ask, how much do they talk of Jesus, promote trust in and obedience to Jesus? Are the main things of the faith always the main things, the kind of things that are in the creeds say? <coughs> or does their teaching nurture a life of loving service? Or is it actually practically useless? And recognise that if you're going to wean someone off these things, you know, like you might want to wean someone off junk food, but then you've got to provide an alternate healthy diet to stop them thinking about their speculations. You'll need to be able to give them truth to think about. And to do that, you must strive to be someone who rightly handles the word of truth yourself, who themselves reads the Bible to learn of Jesus and God's great salvation in him so that you can follow him. Someone who gets the big picture, who knows the Bible storyline. 
People are always looking for practical applications, so here's one. If you've never done it, read the Bible right through to see its preparation for Christ in the old and his fulfilment of those promises in the new. Be someone who gets the big picture. Strive to be. Do your best to be. Make it matter to you to be someone who can read and teach God's word well. The unashamed workman is focused on the gospel. And secondly, the unashamed workman is to be faithful to the gospel message delivered to him and has nothing to do with the false teaching that corrupts the gospel message. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Paul describes this false teaching as irreverent babble. That is irreverent. No real fear of God as its practitioners pick and choose from God's word to suit their purposes. And babble, just empty talk, the hot air of their corrupted imaginations. All this kind of thing does is promote godlessness, life lived apart from God in defiance of God, subject to the judgment of God. And to bring home its serious danger, Paul says it spreads like gangrene. In those days, the only way to stop the spread of gangrene was really amputation. While gangrene was part of the body, its spread was unstoppable and its effect deadly. That's how serious it is. So it has to be kept out of the life of God's people. And Paul goes on and gives an example of these empty talkers. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Now, Hymenaeus, we could have met in 1 Timothy, described there as someone who'd rejected faith and a good conscience. And it appears that despite Paul's discipline, he's not mended his ways and has, with Philetus, fallen short, abandoned the truth by saying that the resurrection's already happened. Now let's pause and think about their teaching because it's actually an instructive, even though brief, an instructive example. See, saying the resurrection has already happened, it means that they're most likely saying that the resurrection is spiritual. Now that sounds like some things the apostle had taught about how we live now in newness of life by the power of God's spirit, but they were saying that the resurrection was only entirely spiritual. There was no more. And so they were saying that salvation is already complete in the here and now. So this was teaching built on a selective misrepresentation of the apostles' teaching that just happened to be in harmony with their society's worldview, for it was a society that thought the body was the enemy of the soul and a bodily resurrection absurd. Oh, and being something people had to be talked into believing it would undoubtedly portray itself as elitist, only for those who've got the ability to grasp these deep truths. (coughs) And in claiming salvation was already complete, it seriously distorted the Christian life because what's not saved, the body, doesn't matter anymore. So its adherents could either be ascetic, denying the goodness of the body, or be hedonistic because what you do in the body couldn't touch your soul, your salvation. And, of course, such a teaching would be very marketable in their society. But sadly, it's also all empty talk with its origin in their own minds. 
you know, the demand, the, the, the denial of a bodily resurrection is, as Paul had pointed out in 1 Corinthians 15, a complete departure from the gospel, which has at its core Christ's bodily resurrection and promises ours and says, say 1 Corinthians 6, that what we do now in the body matters. But, you know, a lot of false teaching that we encounter today is like this denial of the resurrection. It comes from the teacher's own imagination, often built on a misrepresentation of a part of Scripture and ignoring all the rest. Oh, it's usually much more in harmony with the beliefs of the surrounding society, saving its adherents from any awkward confrontations with their society. Always elitist because it's based on special knowledge not on grace and, of course, marketable and malleable, very adaptive to its society. And while this teaching usually claims links to the Christian faith, even sometimes claiming to rescue the Christian faith, it's another religion. You can think of examples, the health and wealth gospel, the current post-Christian movement, the liberalism of the early 20th century, all like that. And such False teaching can unsettle the faith of some because at one level it sounds so familiar and at another level it's so different. And dealing with the confidence of these false teachers and seeing people swayed by them can actually be discouraging. It can sometimes even make you anxious for the future of the church as you see people being led away. So Paul in verse 19 gives Timothy, gives Timothy, someone entrusted with God's message and leadership in the Christian community, encouragement from the account of those who opposed God's appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron, in Numbers 16. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. Think, says Paul, of the church as a house God is building. He's the one who's laid the foundation. He's determined how the building will be built. And he says he's placed his seal on the foundation. We don't do that, but in in Paul's day, people would place their seal on the foundation when they were building a house or other building to indicate their ownership. And what God has written on his seal tells us what will mark his ownership of his church, how the building will be built. And this is what's written on his seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. With these quotes, Paul it turns to the account of Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, which you heard read this evening. There Korah and his colleagues challenge Moses and Aaron. You know, they come to Moses and Aaron and they say, you've improperly put yourself in the leadership of God's people and in mediating their relationship with God. And Korah says to Moses and Aaron, we're as good as you. We can approach God ourselves on our terms. We are equal to you in that. Now the false teachers are like Korah claiming that their teaching was as much from God as Paul's and Timothy's, that they could take the initiative and say about God what they wanted and relate to God in the way they want, and that Timothy had no right to insist that his gospel was the only gospel. Well, Moses replied, number 6-5, to Korah, that it's actually God who gets to decide who can approach him. 
who will lead God's people, who will mediate the people's relationship with God. And it's actually this verse, number 6-5, that Paul quotes here from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Lord knows those who are his. Paul is reminding Timothy from the scriptures that God decides how people relate to him, that God's the one who gives the message and chooses the messengers, who has chosen the apostles as the bringers of his, God's, gospel. And just as the Lord vindicated his choice of Aaron through the destruction of Korah in his presumption, so the Lord will vindicate his gospel and his faithful messengers in building his church. The Lord has decided to build his church through the gospel entrusted to the apostles. And that's the way it will be. And Paul stays in number 16 to remind Timothy that the church will be made up of those who heed that gospel message. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There in Numbers 16, 29, as you heard, Moses tells the assembly to separate themselves from Dathan and Abiram, who had also challenged Moses and Aaron, to depart from their sin. And in Numbers 16, those who do live. It's those believers who keep listening to God's messengers. Those believers who keep listening to the apostles' gospel, who separate themselves from the sin of the false teachers, who will live and be included in God's people. So Timothy needn't be discouraged by this false teaching. It's God who builds his church, and he's decided it will be built through the gospel entrusted to the apostles, those who listen to the apostolic gospel. He just needs to keep on faithfully guarding the good deposit, the gospel entrusted to him. But it can be such hard work that there is always a temptation to embrace a complacent mediocrity, you know, that just wants a quiet life, that doesn't want to have to keep on with the gospel focus, that keeps others engaged with Christ, that gets tired of having to battle for gospel faithfulness that exposes and confronts error. Complacent mediocrity can tempt us all. So Paul gives Timothy and all of us encouragement to be ambitious, ambitious for service. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and clay, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonourable, he'll be a vessel for honourable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul uses another picture, a picture from a large household. Such households have a range of containers of varying quality for a range of uses. Some are used to serve the owner's food or entertain his valued guests, others for menial jobs, to collect scraps and rubbish. Whether they're honoured or dishonoured is known by the use to which they're put. And then Paul applies the picture in verse 21, the point, if you get rid of engagement with what's dishonourable, you will be a vessel that can be employed for honourable activities. Now, cleanses himself from what is dishonourable is literally, if anyone cleanses himself from these things. So Paul is referring by that phrase back to fighting about words and irreverent and empty speech and the behaviour associated with those preoccupations and errors. 
Paul says to Timothy, if you get rid of those things, if you're focused and faithful, you will be holy, set apart as precious to the master, useful to him, ready for every good work. And he says that to us as well, if anyone cleanses him or herself. And that prospect should excite us. You see, we should want to be set apart to the Lord, useful, ready to do the good that honours him. For our master is good, he is holy, righteous, just, he's gracious, he loves us and he keeps us eternally. Being his is good, his will is good and we owe him everything. We should be ambitious for useful service, determined to have nothing to do with useless speculation and destructive false teaching. But that usefulness is not just a matter of right doctrine, as Paul makes clear in verse 22. (coughs) So flee useful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul expresses that becoming useful to the master is a double duty, flee and pursue. Words that convey both the urgency and the commitment required. Flee youthful passions. Now, in our sexualized culture, we tend to think that Paul's talking, of course, about sexual desire, sexual passion. But that's actually not been raised in this context. Paul's been talking about fighting over words and the empty chatter of new false teaching. He's told Timothy in a picture to get rid of those things. And now he instructs him and us to run away from those things in our heart. Run away from those things in our heart that make us susceptible to them. He's telling us to flee from the desires that draw us to that empty chatter. Where to flee from the self-assertion and self-importance that we like to express in winning verbal confrontations, from the self-confidence in opinion that will batter away at an opponent until they concede your superiority and loves the opportunity to do so, to flee from the enthusiasm for new things and impatience with the old and received that shows how much more insightful we are than those that went before us. We're told to flee in our hearts from those things. And perhaps you recognise those things in yourself. Perhaps others might recognise them in you by your conversation or your online behaviour. Paul calls them youthful passions and others have seen those things in the young and the the way they speak and argue, particularly in young men. Uh, Bob Dylan has a famous song, My Back Pages, reflecting on his confidence in his own youthful opinions. And the refrain of that song goes, Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now by far. But Paul isn't telling us and Timothy to grow up. What Paul wants may not necessarily come with age. No, he says now flee. Flee that self-importance, that love of a quarrel, that love of demonstrating your own superiority, that seeking the applause of others. 
and instead pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Pursue those things now along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Be determined, he says, to have not just doctrine but a life shaped by commitment to the gospel. The genuine Christian life that's the goal of all the Lord's people, all who call on the Lord from a sincere heart, all who are single-mindedly seeking the Lord. And that life, he says, is characterised by righteousness, right conduct that conforms to the will of God and is pleasing to God, that embraces the way we conduct ourselves in business, in work, in expressing our sexual nature, in all of life, pursue righteousness and faith. I think here, as in the related term in 2.2, he's talking about faithfulness, reliability, being someone who keeps their word and the word entrusted to them. Along with righteousness, faith, pursue love, the first fruit of the Spirit, a life where all our actions are now guided by seeking the good of the other and pursue peace. Being someone whose life is not marked by contentiousness, not warlike, not somebody who's always looking for a fight. No, someone whose life is marked by tranquility and stability, who can pursue what makes for peace. Be ambitious to be useful by handling the word properly, by avoiding false teaching and preoccupations with what's marginal. But never think right doctrine or the ability to teach the Bible well is enough on its own. We need to hear that, especially in the anonymity of the internet where you can be a warrior for orthodoxy on social media but have a life that is self-preoccupied and selfish where zeal for the truth is actually just a cover for those youthful passions. And on the internet you can get away with it and then enjoy a false reputation of being a faithful believer. No, flee pursue and someone who has fled and pursued will have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels oh yes there's a time for opposing false teaching and wrong behavior as paul demonstrated when he had to rebuke peter's inconsistent behavior in antioch but you have to pick your fights some are never worth getting into uh, such as controversies that are ignorant uninformed and undisciplined by the scriptures that actually deal with people's speculations. They're not worth getting into because they can never be resolved because there's no authority outside the person's mind that can resolve them. It will always be one opinion against another and they are good for nothing except breeding quarrels and that is what the Lord's servant should never be engaged with. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. The Lord's servant. Paul actually now calls us by the title he uses of himself, so Romans 1.1. He's inviting us to have the same understanding of our ministry as he has of his. Every believer is the Lord's servant, meant to be exclusively loyal and accountable to Jesus in all things. <coughs> but here is a reminder, especially to those who have teaching authority, that actually the gospel is the Lord's 
to people of the Lord's, the effectiveness of our ministry as the Lord's, and we're accountable to him. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Instead, he should be characterised by these three other qualities. Kind to everyone. A kind person looks to the comfort of others. She or he is not preoccupied with their own status or how others are thinking of them. They're actually thinking of the other person and their needs. A kind person doesn't seek to embarrass or shame, is not overbearing or bullying. Our Lord was kind, wasn't he? I mean, he showed kindness to that young married couple in Cana who ran out of wine. He didn't draw attention to their lack or to himself. He just met their need. Oh, he showed kindness to the leper who asked for cleansing. He didn't need to touch him. He could have healed him with a word, but a touch affirmed and welcomed him. The widow of Nain didn't ask Jesus to raise her son. He had compassion. He went out of his way and without being asked, stopped the funeral procession and raised her son. Our Lord is kind and he expects his servants to be like him. And here's the kicker, he expects us to be kind to everyone, even those who oppose us. You know, it's easy to be kind to some people, those who excite our sympathy, but other people, let's face it, are just difficult, yet there are no exceptions. Kind to everyone. And the Lord's servant must be able to teach. Change, you see, in the hearts and lives of God's people comes from persuasion of the truth of God, from having the word opened, explained and applied. And Paul models that in his letters. We've just finished going through 1 Corinthians in the devotions and what we've seen there is that Paul doesn't come with all their issues and say, that's wrong, stop that, do that, just orders them about depending on his naked authority as an apostle. Now what we see in his letters is that Paul persuades. He shows how their behaviour or their views are inconsistent with the cross and inconsistent with love. The Lord's servant has to be able to teach and teaching's fundamental for the power to give life and nurture life is in the gospel word. And she or he has to be someone who can patiently endure evil, bear evil without resentment. The Lord's servant is actually to, has to be ready to endure the criticism, the consuming of their energy by opposition, the, the frustration of seeing people who are slow to change or respond without becoming embittered, without returning evil for evil, without nursing resentment in their hearts. Now that doesn't mean there won't be times when it's right to act against a divisive person or a false teacher. We see Paul doing so in 1 Timothy. Oh, and instructing Titus to do so in Titus uh, 3. But Paul is actually not prescribing actions here, is he? He is calling for an internal quality, an ability to patiently bear evil. And a servant who is kind, able to teach and patient is the servant God wants and we need because he or she can do what needs to be done correcting their opponents with gentleness. See, there is authority to be exercised in both instruction and correction and insistence we should have on people change, changing. But even though false teachers, the sinful, those in error, 
are to be corrected with gentleness, not harshly or rudely, not their folly made plain to all, not with bitter sarcasm, not with shouting, not by humiliating, which all create fear and resentment, but they're to be corrected gently. And that's actually really hard. Where can you get the confidence, the strength to deal gently with those who oppose you, those who make life difficult for you? Well, it comes from confidence in the God of the gospel, the gospel that tells you that God does his work, his powerful saving work, his way, and that way is surprising, isn't it? It's it's actually the way of the cross. It's the way that turns expectations of leadership and power on its head, where the great are those who serve. Ministry has to be characterised by truth, by commitment to the gospel handed down by the apostle, but it also must be characterised by love, by obedience to the Lord revealed in the gospel, who has loved and who commands love, love even for our enemies. It's not just in the content but in the conduct of our ministry as well, that we must remember Jesus Christ. That's remember back in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. In our conduct we have to remember Jesus Christ too, the Lord Jesus who humbled himself to die on the cross and calls us to follow him who actually gave himself for us while we were still his enemies. Getting this is so important. You know, some high-profile ministries, and you can probably think of a number, in recent years have come undone because of abuse by the senior pastor, because of bullying. And you can see how easy that could happen, at least I can. It's so easy to become impatient and angry when you're tired. It's easy to pressure people to perform and to conform, to be abusive and justified by zeal for the truth or the importance of the mission. It's easy to start to see opposition as obstruction and attack on your leadership, your God-given leadership that's been vindicated by your success and then become fierce in cutting people off. That's easy, but it is never right. The Lord's servant must gently instruct his opponents. And I stress that because you might be in charge one day of a team at work or a ministry team. You have to be aware of the need for gentleness and the possibility of abusing the power of your position, actually abusing power in intimate relationships. Oh, and secondly, one day you might be looking for a pastor And it's important to know what to look for. Gentleness, kindness to all are so important, but not often equated with success. And congregations, especially congregations that have a high view of their own importance, can look for success, someone who will enhance their reputation and overlook whether they're kind and gentle to their own harm. More importantly... These things, gentleness, patience, persuasion of those who differ from us by God's word, 
should characterise all of us. We're the Lord's servants and we can't do his will in any but his way. And fruitfulness in our ministry doesn't depend on our power to bend others to our will. It depends on God. It must depend on God. And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here is the goal of engaging gently with those who disagree with us. Repentance. Repentance that leads them to embracing the gospel, conforming their thinking to the revelation of Jesus. But it is God's gift, as all fruitfulness in ministry is. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. A grasp of God's sovereignty in the work of the gospel will actually help you be gentle, patient, working for change through the teaching of Scripture. God does his work his way. You won't be able to do it your way. Your manipulation, your cajoling, your coercion won't work God's will in someone's life. It might bring external conformity and agreement if you're a powerful person, but it won't bring repentance. And knowing repentance is God's gift will also encourage you when you remember what you're up against. Opponents of the gospel have been intoxicated by the devil's lies, captured by him. Ministry of the word goes on in the context of a spiritual battle and the devil is always seeking to oppose the truth. He's the one who sows the seeds in the Lord's wheat field. It's the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Behind the false teaching going on at Ephesus, Paul wrote with a deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. So often we go about ministry whether it's in Sunday school or growth group or just in one-on-one conversations, as if all the action is solely on the plane of this tangible world, of what we can see and hear, and all our explanations of why people aren't changing or we're not getting through is given solely in terms of this world. And that means we are often prayerless and often tempted to look to means other than those God has given to do his work. But it is the devil who is opposing the gospel, the devil who has seduced and ensnared its opponents, and only the almighty God can set them free, and God sets them free by the means he provides, the patient preaching and teaching of the gospel. Well, this is the work of an unashamed minister of the gospel, characterised by a focus on the gospel, on the Lord Jesus revealed in the scriptures, by persevering faithfulness that has nothing to do with the corruptions of false teachers, that is confident that God will vindicate his message and call his people to himself by the ministry of faithful preachers, are characterised by an ambition to serve that flees from argumentativeness and pursues righteousness, faithfulness, love and peace. I'm characterised by a love that is kind and patient, even dealing with opponents. So seeing that actually that's the ministry of an unashamed gospel preacher, will you pray for your pastors and all who teach that we would be that kind of person, committed to doing God's work God's way, 
We need prayer because it doesn't come naturally to many of us to be kind and patient. But it's actually good for us and it's good for you if we're sustained in kindness, faithfulness and patience. So pray for us. And secondly, store what you've read away here. Store this away for the time when you might be calling someone. You want to know their teaching and you want to know their life. It's important that they deal with you gently, that they do God's work God's way. But finally, be ambitious yourself. Get fired up with a godly ambition to be a useful servant, ready for any good work by training yourself in the truth of the gospel. The Lord Jesus whom we meet in the gospel is such a good saviour. It is wonderful to serve him, wonderful to be set apart as his. Be ambitious yourself. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for this word. And again we pray that we would not just be hearers but people who do. We pray that we would be disciplined to have nothing to do with idle and empty speculation. We pray that you would so work in us understanding and conviction of the truth of your gospel that we would flee from error. We pray that we wouldn't be content with mediocrity but that you would so work in us that we would flee from those things and embrace righteousness, faithfulness, love and peace. And gracious Father, we pray that we would so know the grace and the gentleness of our Lord Jesus in dealing with us that we would be gentle and kind people who trust you and your word enough to seek only to do your will, your way, to persuade people of the truth and of the good of following Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.